I am excited to talk a little bit more about this upside down kingdom concept. Just to be clear, it's the world that's upside down. You got that right. His kingdom is right side up. The world is upside down. The problem is, though, that's the world we live in. And so everywhere you look, if you're living right and upright, then you're running, you're bumping your head into things. It's like that old Christian shirt with the fish swimming upstream. You're going to constantly be running into situations where you feel like you're out of place. And you are. You are out of place because we belong to a different kingdom. Our citizenship is not of this world. And because of that, we're going to constantly be in conflict. We're constantly going to be confused. We're going to be misunderstood. But on the other hand, there's an opportunity for you to represent what the kingdom really should be. We get to do that. God gives us the opportunity, the privilege, the challenge to represent what the true kingdom is and the way it should be. And so often the world interprets Christianity for us or to us. And there may be times where you're hearing a news report or a sales ad or something, and it refers to something about Christianity. And I don't know if you, like me, I sometimes get offended. And I think, wait a minute, that's not Christianity. The way you just described that is just off enough that you're fooling people and you're lumping things together that don't fit, and that's not right. Somebody has to tell people what it is. I bet you that there's a lot of your friends and family who probably are confused about some elements of Christianity that you could help them with. But I know that can be awkward, but there's times where it might just be your responsibility, your privilege, your challenge to say, well, and there's ways to do it that are non, non offensive. You might say something like, well, that may be true, but here's how I see it. Because everybody's entitled to their own opinion, right? You can use that for your, <laughs> for your benefit. And you can just lay it out there the way it should be. And I guarantee you that the more you do that, the more that will start to ring true with them. But the fact is, we live in a world that is upside down. It's all backward. We live in a world that, that is so upside down that they think the only people you should be kind to are the ones you love and agree with you. Correct? Let me, let me read you this. this is a, anybody know who Emo Phillips is? He's a comedian. Thank you. Can you do his voice? Okay. <laughs> He's a comedian, but let me just, this is one of his jokes. I just want you to, to listen to it because it's a joke on Christians. Okay, two men were on a cruise ship together and began to talk. Finally, one of them asked, do you believe in God? And the other man said, yes. And he said, well, I do too. Are you a Christian or a Jew? And the man said, I'm a Christian. Me too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? Protestant. Me too. See how they're getting along? Okay. Well, what denomination? Baptist. Me too. Well, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist. Well, me too. Nor Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Modern ba Moderate Baptist? Northern Conservative Baptist. Me too. So they're doing good here. Are, are you of the Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. Me too. <laughs> So are you the Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or the Northern Baptist <laughs> Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region of Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region of Council of 1912. And he says, oh, you heretic. <laughs> so they got all that in common, but at the very end there, they hate each other. And how true is that? I mean, that's how we are in the world. Another thing upside down about our world is it seems like we have come to a point where for someone, especially a man, to be 
to be a man, he's got to be really tough and pugilistic, right? And nobody can say anything that might be offensive to him without him defending himself. Especially, I know a lot of us are into sports and I enjoy sports a lot, but I got to be honest, I'm getting tired of seeing our professional sports seeming to be populated by guys who just seem so thuggish all the time. It just seems to be about that. And it's easy for me to be judgmental about that, but then I was just thinking this week about, I was reminded of uh, back in college, I was in a Western Civ class, and in the class, we were studying the Colosseum, the Roman Colosseum. And I don't know if you remember that or studied that, but you know, it was used for a lot of things, but one of the things it was used for was literally duels and fights to the death by the gladiators. Now, we've romanticized that with different movies, you know, Gladiator, for instance. And what the teacher did, he was a clever guy, and he sucked us all in. And first thing he talked about was how evil that was and how horrible it was. And these were slaves brought from different parts of the empire. And they were forced to fight. And if they didn't fight, they'd be killed. And they had to fight to the death. And oftentimes they were fighting against different groups. And then the next day they'd be fighting against each other. And, you know, so you break down, make alliances, break alliances, a horrible thing, right? So we're all agreeing how horrible it is. And we're saying how horrible it is. So then he kind of shifts gears, talks about something else, and then he says, okay, we're in end class today with this movie. So he pops in a movie, and in the movie, you you meet a gladiator, and then you start to follow this person's life, and then this person, and another person, and they, they have this ongoing conflict. And so as a group, you start to really dislike the person that they're having a conflict with, and these unfair things happen to the hero over and over and over, and pretty soon, they're against each other in battle. And what were we doing? We were cheering for the hero to kill the villain. It was hilarious. So he stops the movie midway and he says, look at you. Just like that, you who were so altruistic and had all these great values, now you can't even apply them because once you you get sucked into the fervor of it all, now all of a sudden you're just as evil as you thought everybody else was. And don't we do that? Don't we let the world that is around us force us and convince us that this is okay or that this is right? And it's so difficult sometimes to stand up against that onslaught. So difficult. Well, with that said, let's talk for a few minutes about this attitude. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Because Christians are kind of nice, right? And seen as maybe kind of wimpy sometimes. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but there's been times where I was, I've been on mission trips. And, you know, especially in Mexico where, you know, most of the religious figures were priests and I remember one time in particular, we were in Mexico and um, we, we kept running into conflict with some of the area people. And this guy came and talked to me and he says, well, I need to talk to the priest. Who's the father here? And it was me. So I said, well, it's me. And he looked at me and he just said, well, you don't look like a priest. I said, well, no, I'm not a priest. And he said, well, all the priests here are more like women than men. I remember looking at him thinking, what are you talking about? And that's what he was talking about. It's such a macho society that that they get this idea that that's how Christians are, that we're mealy mouth, wimpy, let people walk on us. Do you think there's a good reason for them thinking that? I mean, what, what is the image of Christianity? Who, who, who defines Christianity in today's world? But most often, it's not us. Most often, it's not us writing the movies. It's or being, you know, depicting characters in film or books or whatever. Those characters are usually defined by people who are very anti-Christian and anti the values of Christianity. So it's no wonder to me that oftentimes they get it wrong. But having said that, let's take a look at what Jesus does say. 
You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Now, how do you think that's going to play in the world we live in? Is that going to make sense to anybody? They're going to think you're out of your mind because that's not how things work. How things work in the real world is you put your enemies as far away as possible and you, you gather enough friends so that you can beat them and fight them. That's the way you're supposed to do it. And then Jesus takes it further. He takes it even further. He ups the ante here. And he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, I thought of you, Patrick, and I put this word in just for you tonight. Um, this is from the Latin, lex talionis. And this is, this is the, the phrase of equal retribution. Or another, it, it comes also from the Code of Hammurabi. The idea was a principle of proportional justice. The eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I've actually heard people and talked to people who, who, who they, they quoted that eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and then they used it as a way to to describe Christianity as barbaric. They totally misunderstand. On the other hand, a lot of people use this eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth as an excuse for revenge. Again, they completely misunderstood this. What this was, this this whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was actually a limit on revenge. Because in the world that, that, that the Bible existed in at this time, there were no rules. And most often what happened was more like the Hatfields and McCoys where things just escalated over and over and over and over. And if something happened to one person, then it would be done twice to the other. And then all of a sudden families are involved in, you know, ultimately nations. I mean, huge wars and devastation. And that's usually the history of humankind. So when God brings this idea of limiting this, this retribution, this revenge, this payback, this was actually a huge improvement for, for mankind and human, humankind. Huge improvement. But something else people get wrong is they don't realize the fact that even in Scripture, if you look carefully at the Old Testament, they didn't do what you may have heard about you know, Muslims doing with cutting off hands and that kind of thing. They didn't do that. That was reserved specifically for capital punishment and then somebody who had lied on, under oath in a, le- in a uh, legal case. The rest of the time, there were certain... Uh, financial payments like 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 uh, fines that you could pay instead of you know getting your tooth knocked out if you knock someone's tooth out. Having said that, Jesus is taking it to another level. Here's what he does: he takes something that was so concrete and easy to follow because we like it that way, don't we? We like our rules nice and neat. Tell me exactly what I have to do, no more, no less, and that's all I want to do. Jesus doesn't stop there. He always goes for the heart. He always goes for the motivation behind it. What's underneath this? What's driving you? What is it that's causing you to do these things that you do? So he takes it further and he says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. What is he saying there? Do not resist an evil person. He starts to explain. The evil person is whoever slaps you on your right cheek Turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. 
People have described this portion of the, of the Sermon on the Mount as the hard sayings of Jesus. In fact, some people have said that, that this portion is the most difficult verse in the Bible. Anybody ever heard this described this way? Because they say it's impossible. How could we possibly live like this? I mean, does Jesus really expect you to be beaten upon by people and taken advantage of and empty your entire bank account if somebody just wants your money? What is he saying? Some people have said, well, maybe it's just hyperbole, you know, exaggeration to make a point, because that's common, common in the Middle East, very common in the scripture. Jesus uses hyperbole in other instances. We certainly see hyperbole in, you know, in the, in the, in the Psalms and different places in the Bible. We wonder, is it impossible? Here's what you need to know. God doesn't change. He doesn't change. Now we do. And what we want to hear from him, we change. I mean, that, that changes. Human beings change. There have been times in human history where we needed certain laws to pull us a certain direction. But the truth is, he doesn't change. Not only that, he doesn't give us commands that are impossible to obey. Jesus isn't going to ask you to do something that's impossible. So the real question is, how, how, how much hyperbole was this? How much exaggeration was Jesus saying? So let's take a look exactly at what he was trying to say. Well, first of all, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You have to know that when Jesus said this in public, people had to be just blown away. The religious establishment hearing this when he said this had to blow them away because no one had the right to talk like that. No one could have talked with that kind of authority that he himself said he would fulfill the prophets. That was just, that was crazy talk. And Jesus goes further. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I, I grew up on King James. And this in the NIV says the least stroke of a pen. Remember the jot and tittle? You guys remember that? You ever wonder what that was? Anybody ever show you? I thought I might just show you tonight. This is actually a tittle. It's the little horn on the end of a letter. So you might see it here. And here's some comparisons of very similar Hebrew letters. And you can see how similar they are. They're just separated by a little horn. Just a little tiny, tiny, tiny difference. That's what Jesus is saying. Not even the most minuscule point of the law is going to change. He goes further. And, oh, this is kind of hard to see, isn't it? Do you see the jot up there? It's right there. See how little it is? It's the smallest little letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And here it is in a word. So there's the jot. There's your jot and tittle. That's the smallest little stroke. None of that is going to change, Jesus says. So what is he trying to say? He goes even further. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what Jesus was doing. He was saying, you want to follow the letter of the law, but I'm going to tell you what the heart behind the law is. There's actually a lawgiver who has an intent behind it, who loves you and cares for you and has a way for you to live that is far superior to anything you've ever imagined. And it's not about just following the rules. It's following the rules because you want to, because it's the right thing to do. It's treating people the right way because it comes deep from within your heart. You don't even have to think about it. It's who you are. He goes further. 
I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we know what he thought of them, the Pharisees and teachers of the law. In fact, it's, it's so interesting that Pharisee now, that was a religious party, a religious, almost a sect in the Jewish community at the time of Christ. And now that's synonymous with hypocrite. You could call someone a Pharisee and they would be, it would be the same as calling them a hypocrite. Jesus hated that because those are the ones who followed the letter of the law, but their heart wasn't in it. Those were the ones who gave only what they had to give or they gave for a show because they didn't really want to give. That's the difference. So let's, let's look at what would Jesus do? If, if that's the truth, what was the heart behind it? Some people might say, well, maybe Jesus was a pacifist then. Maybe he was teaching just like Gandhi, but not with the bald head. I don't think so. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Because that's not what he did. And that's not how he lived. This is obviously an old picture of Jesus cleansing the temple or purifying the temple. This happened on two occasions, the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry. And what was happening at this time, to give you a little idea of what Jesus was about, he wasn't someone that just laid, turned over for any injustice that he saw. And you know how he was. He spoke out against injustice all the time. He spoke out against the rulers and people who were doing things that were evil. He did that vocally. But this is a diagram of the, of the temple grounds where Jesus would have been and the area that this would have happened in. See this right here where it says court of the Gentiles, this really large area here. This was the only area that the Gentiles could, were allowed to be in. And then if you look up here, do you see, see where it says, oops, do you see right here where it has this wall of partition? See this little wall? This would have been a little wall. It would have been short, but it would have been separated where the Gentiles could go, the non-Jews, which would have been right around here, from right around here where the Israelites could go. The women were allowed here. The men could go this close. And then this is where the actual temple was, where the sacrifices and that kind of thing. So you see the Gentiles were limited to this space. What was happening was during this time of the year, they were required to bring sacrifices, and most people couldn't afford to travel with their you know, animals to sacrifice and whatnot. So it was just a good business decision to sell them there, right? That in and of itself doesn't seem unreasonable. On the other hand, though, we know how business can go, and supply and demand would dictate that if there's more demand than supply, you can charge a lot more, right? So you can start to take advantage of the pilgrims who traveled all that way, so Jesus was upset about that, but he was also upset, I guarantee you, about the fact that the only place the Gentiles could go, they were using for animals. Do you know how dirty that would have been? Do you know how smelly and the chaos and the bargaining and the structures to hold them and all of that mess would have completely precluded the Gentiles from even being near the, near the temple? Why would that bother anybody? Because the Son of God created them just like he created everybody else, and he wanted a relationship with them. And these Jews didn't even get it, and they totally disgraced not only the place where the Gentiles could be, but he disgraced, what, what did Jesus say? My house will be a house of prayer. And he threw them out. So that is not the pacifist Jesus that some people want to claim. The same guy who said, I tell you, turn the other cheek. So what was he actually saying? He was saying not to resist the evil person. Some translations would say, uh, would, would talk about it, instead of resist, be to repay the evil person. 
So he, he mentions four things, cheeks, cloaks, miles, and money. Think about the cheek verse. Did you notice how specific it was? There's times when scripture is very specific, and it's specific for a reason. What cheek was hit? How do you hit someone on the right cheek? Most people are right-handed, so you got to backhand them. A backhanded slap is an insult almost in every culture, isn't it? Jesus was talking about an insult. He wasn't just talking about someone physically beating up somebody else. It's not something that happens on the bus and you're supposed to just take it. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is an insult, whether it's physical or not. He's talking about a physical insult. You might think I was thinking of kind of the duels. You remember? You see these guys, these Frenchmen with their duels and their little gloves. This is an insult. Now, obviously, it's physical, but this is an insult. It's, it's more of an insult than it has anything to do with someone fighting. It's not even about that. In fact, when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, what's he saying? He's not saying, continue the fight. What he's doing is he's saying, you actually, you actually then control the situation. It's not like it's being done to you anymore. Now, all of a sudden, you're, you're the one. You're the actor. Let me get back to this. Cloak. What's the cloak thing about? Most of us think, are you just supposed to just keep taking your clothes off for these people? How does this work? I mean, how often does someone take your cloak? That doesn't even make sense, does it? I mean, are they borrowing it? I mean, what was the situation that Jesus was describing? In a lot of these cases, we have to go back and find out what was happening in that culture and what did that mean? Because you can't always just roughly translate that into 21st century Lee Summit culture. Because if somebody asks me for a coat, that's fine. I've got, I've got another one. It's not a big deal. Why would he even use this as an example? What, what they say is during, during these times, especially if you were poor, one of the things that Jews were not allowed to do, they weren't supposed to charge interest to each other. But they could take a marker or something as collateral for a loan until you repaid the loan. And there's actually law, case law, from the first century that describes someone poor giving their coat as collateral. But Jewish law, even in the Old Testament, is very specific and says that you're not allowed to keep the coat overnight in case a person would be cold, right? So it, I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's another culture. And Jesus is talking to people who understood this because this would have been common knowledge to them. And then what they would do is you were actually supposed to be able to go back to the lender and say, I need my coat. And then they would give you back your coat for the night. And then you go in the morning and give it back to them. I know it sounds weird to us, but it's a different, it's a different economy. It's not how we live today. So what he's saying here, though, is there were times when a person would start to default on a loan. And what do you do? You take their coat. Then what? Give them your, your cloak, too. What's he talking about with miles? When I, hear, when I read this scripture, I think of the American Revolution and just how the British soldiers could conscript, conscript uh, the, the early settlers here and use their houses or make them do service for them. The same thing was true in the Roman Empire. A Roman soldier could tell any Jew to carry, his, carry whatever he needed carried, any load, for one mile. Now, remember, they're walking most of us don't walk any miles today, do we? Unless it's on a treadmill or something. We're not actually walking miles. So these people are walking a lot of miles. But think about how humiliating it would be. Because he could ask anybody of any class, 
in any position, they would have to stop what they were doing and serve this occupier, this person they hated, this Gentile, this uncircumcised Roman to do whatever they ask him to do. There's a lot of bitterness here with being under this type of oppression. And what Jesus is saying is, when you are asked to walk that mile, walk a second mile. Look what he does about the money. We know how money is, right? I think this one we probably understand the best. Most of us are willing to lend a friend some money. But there comes a point where enough is enough and we're taken advantage of. So what is Jesus saying? This portion of scripture is a lot more about non-retaliation than it is about being a doormat. Yet people have so often misinterpreted this and put this on Christians as if this is how we're supposed to be, and they don't even understand where it comes from. What this is about is Jesus saying that you need to be proactive, not reactive. We are not at the mercy of the world. We're the ones that are bringing the truth to the world. The way you react to everyday situations, whatever they are, if it's an insult, if it's it's an inconvenience, If it's something somebody seemingly would be taking advantage of you, imagine what it communicates when you go above and beyond and go the extra mile. There's a reason there's a saying like that, because it communicates to people that you are different than the rest of the world. You're not part of this upside down kingdom that's all around us. You're part of the kingdom that serves people beyond what's expected. Why? Because you love them because you care for them, because you see in them the spark of God that is there, that in the middle of their humanness and their mess, that you see what's valuable to the King of Kings, because it's the same thing in you, and because you know what he did for you, and you know he did it for them too. You de-escalate the situation. In our world today, you've probably seen so many examples where you're at that pivotal point of escalating or de-escalating. Which way is this going to go? Somebody says something rude, and what do you say back? How do you respond? What do you do? Someone cuts you off in traffic. (laughs) What's your response? What comes to your mind? Comes out of your mouth? What's your attitude toward them? Someone cuts in front of you in line, especially coming up, we're coming up in shopping season. Does anybody else like to just go and watch? I just love watching. I love to go to the mall when it's crowded, or or I've done this a couple times. I, I don't know if it's worth losing sleep, but I love that, that one morning where, what is that one day where everybody goes shopping really early? Yeah, I love, I've been a couple times just to watch because it's amazing. But then you see the worst in people because you're saving five bucks. <laughs> you know, come on. You just lost your salvation over $5. But that's how we are, isn't it? Proverbs says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You should provoke a response. You know what response you should provoke in people? The response that says, this person's from another kingdom. When they mistreat you, when somebody takes advantage, when someone insults you, what response should you provoke? You should provoke the response that says, whoa, they're different. I didn't expect that. Oh my goodness, this just changed things. You know what challenge it could be to make someone smile who's angry? To say the thing that would turn the situation around and open their mind and heart to a kingdom they didn't know existed. You know, so many people, I, I do this sometimes, I just love watching people. I love watching them and studying them and 
I, I find it's fascinating to see even sometimes like in families the genetic similarities and you see, oh, that's a sister maybe. And I mean, I love doing that and just watching the interplay. And then there's times where you see and you wonder, what are they going through? What is it that makes them look so frazzled right now? Do they have a sick kid at home and can't figure out how they're going to pay for this medicine they're waiting in line for? What is it? What is it going on? And it's so easy sometimes for us to be so wrapped up in our own little world that we're so offendable. And it's so easy for us to lose our cool or just, or, or think the worst in people because something happened that was unjust. Finally, Peter says, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Sounds like Peter might have been there at that sermon, huh? It's almost word for word. You know what's another interesting thing? As I think about this whole situation, let's think about Jesus again and what he did. I mean, think about this for a minute. He, he lived out these scenarios even in the last moments of his life on earth. He was slapped, in a sense, by Judas' kiss. Did you ever think about that? The insult that would be? This person who you'd lived with for three years, you had trained, you'd walked with, slept with, ate with. I mean, they knew each other intimately. As much as you would know a roommate or a, or a friend that you've spent a lot of time with. I mean, these guys were camping out all the time. It's not like they went to different houses. Imagine the insult when Judas walks up and kisses him and Jesus says, you would betray me with a kiss? Think about Jesus and the soldiers mocking him. You know that, that line in there about the coat? What do they do with Jesus' clothes? The Bible says they gambled for his clothes and they, they cast lots for them for his clothes. Think about the insults he endured on the cross itself. Here he is at the height of his passion and pain, dying for the sins of the world. And on the one hand, there's a thief who, who mocks him. And what does he do? He does exactly what he said. Think about this for a minute. Think about the power in this. The real power in the kingdom. Not the upside down kingdom that's all bluster and being tough. And it's not that. That momentary thing that fades. We're talking about real power. Think about the power that Christ exhibited on the cross itself. Think about the impact he made. The impression he made when he looked down from that cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But think about it like this. Let's take it another cosmic level. And I know I was going to show you a clip. Does anybody remember um, the champion? What was his name? Um, yeah, I'm joking. Carmen, right. Carmen and the champion. But, but think about it for a minute. What was happening in the cosmos during this? I mean, we know that the enemy of our souls was so delighting in the torture of Jesus, right? He had to be. But do you think at any point he thought, oh my goodness, once he dies and raises, it's over for me. Do you think he was thinking that? I don't think so. 
Now, I know he's far more brilliant than any of us and all of that, but he's also driven by hate and anger and jealousy and all the worst things. So even if he realized that he probably couldn't help himself, but think about this for a minute. The ultimate insult, the ultimate, the ultimate is Christ being dragged through the streets like that, treated like that, the king of the universe, the creator of the very cross he was hung on. And yet, what did he do? He responded as he's asking us to respond in in a way that totally doesn't make sense. In the human world, this upside down kingdom we see all the time, but in the right side up kingdom, look at what he did. He, He changed everything, everything, by paying for the sins that weren't even his to pay for. That's what he's asking us to do. Now, obviously, we're not giving our lives for people per se, but we are. And that's what he asks. He asks for you to do what he did to lay down your life for others, to respond to them in the way that he would do because you see in them what he died for. So how does this work? I mean, when we really do it ourselves, I had up there, what would Jesus do? This is what would you do? What would you do? So what do you do when someone slaps you? What do you do when someone dings your car in the parking lot? Or worse, what do you do when a, when a relative takes advantage of you and borrows money or borrows something and wastes it? What do you do? What do you do when someone needs what you have? How do you respond? My guess is that you, like me, have not responded quite like Christ. That there have been times where there may have been words said to you that wounded or cut and you came right back in kind. Maybe even a little better and a little quicker. There may have been times where the anger welled up and you felt very, very justified in what you did or said. And maybe you didn't even do it right then because some of us are really good at that passive aggressive thing where we'll get back another way. Or we might tell somebody and make it difficult for them. Many of us have probably been misused or somebody's put unfair expectations on something. The road rage thing comes to mind again. I don't see it as much here as I did living in L.A., but... Let's do this, please. Could you please bow your heads for a minute? And Pastor Nick, if you would come. The truth is that we're all flawed, every one of us here. The truth is that as much as we try, this is not something that is easy for us as Christians to do. It's not like we turn it on or turn it off. This is a process that we all are in and we're all in different stages. Some of us further along, some of us further behind. Not only that, some, the truth is that even after we feel like we've achieved maybe a certain level of grace in this area, something will happen or come up where you find 
oh, I fall short again. I want to first address that with us with our eyes closed and our heads bowed. Just, I want you to know that 1 John 1, 9 is just as true now as when John wrote that. And it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, everything. I would like us as a group right now to just take a moment and for you to just Whatever God is speaking to you, the Holy Spirit is so good at convicting us and showing us the areas that, where we lack. <clears throat> and if there's an area like that, if you just take a moment and tell him in your own words, God, I'm sorry. Sorry for those things that I've done, the reactions that I've had, the words, the thoughts. God, I want to be more like you. I want to live like you want me to live. I want you to make my heart more pure. With your eyes still closed, as I said a minute ago, it's, this is not easy. But as we also said, God doesn't ask us to do things that are impossible with him. He's the one that makes this difference. So what I'd like us to do now is to just ask him to come in and to change us fundamentally from the inside out. So in your own words, as I pray, I just would like you to ask him to make those changes necessary from inside of you. Father, we, we all have a heart condition where we want to do our own thing. We are selfish. We, we want what's ours. We demand this and God, I just pray that you would, you would do the work in each of our hearts that's necessary right now. That you would change the things that need changed. That you, would, that you would renew us from the inside out. God, those areas that I've struggled in over and over, I just pray that you'd give me victory. That you'd help me with those things. Father, in the areas where I continually seem to struggle, that you would protect me from temptation, that you would guard my heart, guard my mind, guard my eyes, my mouth. Pray that in your son's name. Amen.